Now that we've said goodbye to summer, it's time to get things back to our everyday autumn groove. The kids are back in school. Leaves are changing color. So much is changing around us. It is increasingly difficult to find extra time for you, the time you need to take care of yourself and look your best. With Plexiderm, all you need is 10 minutes and you can look 10 years younger. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that gives you the appearance of the right kind of changes. Visibly reduce wrinkles, fine lines, and under-eye bags in just minutes. Take up to 10 years off your appearance in less than 10 minutes. The results last for hours, so you can take the family apple picking and look your best the whole time. You can try a six-application trial pack for just $14.95 with free shipping when you visit buyplex, B-U-Y-P-L-X dot com slash Drew, or call 800-685-1292. That's 800-685-1292. And say code Drew. The order also comes with free shipping and a 30-day money-back guarantee. Make the wrinkles, lines, under-eye bags disappear with Plexiderm. Visit Biplex, B-U-Y-P-L-X dot com slash Drew or call 800-685-1292 and then say code Drew at checkout. Hey, now, welcome to the Dr. Drew Podcast. Uh, again, keep the winds in the sail of those that uh, keep us afloat here at the Corolla Pirate Ship. Don't forget to check out drdrew.com for the family of pods there. After dark, people seem to like that. And then uh, we have a daily stream at YouTube slash Dr. Drew. Uh, you can see that on uh, Periscope or Facebook or wherever you like. And uh, while we're doing that, we either have call-ins or chats, so we appreciate you being a part of this. One of my favorite guests of all time is Ryan Holiday, and he joins us today. He has a, yet another book. This is The Lives of the Stoics. This is a new angle on Stoicism. Ryan, as always, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is, uh, this is always an honor. So where should we start? Uh, how, let, me, let me talk about Stoicism in your life again for a minute. Has it helped? Okay. Has it helped? Has it been a great, good way to? I mean, when I first met you, you were like nineteen, and you're how old now? Yeah, I'm thirty three. Yeah, so it's and, been a while. And you've adopted. No, stoicism. I mean to me, it's, it's yeah. the yeah, it's the it's the guiding sort of uh, like philosophy of my life. Yeah, it's uh, it's how I try to make my decisions. It's how I try to go through the world. I mean, I'm not certainly not perfect at it, but it's had a, it's had a huge impact, and I feel like. We're, you know, there's that that Chinese saying like "May you live in interesting times." Yes, uh, yes. I feel like Stoicism is sort of most relevant and helpful precisely when things are worse. Yeah. So there's a there's a part of it where it's like when I feel like I'm leaning on it the most. Obviously, things are the least good, but <laughs> but you know it it it's always there. What about the criticism that it's not a philosophy? There's not an organized, structured philosophical. Um, what should we say logic to it it's sort of more of a this this i know you were encountering this with the guys yeah. at uh, the partially examined life so i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna go at it a little bit it's really more just a guide for living just how to live one's life rather than a philosophy it includes philosophical yeah. sort of coloration but is it truly a philosophy i just i just love that what it says about philosophy that Something being just a guide for how to live is 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 uh, is somehow not what philosophy is. To me, it says sort of something about where philosophy has gone in the in the centuries since the Stoics were alive, which is that it went to a really impractical, theoretical, uh, abstract place, and uh, you know, it, it was interesting stoicism in my books or whatever and i was sort of saying i was like how do you not think that 
professors at a university are monetizing philosophy. They're paid, like they're sitting there having these totally impractical debates, <laughs> on, you know, paid for by, you know, uh, the, the tuition uh, paid by their students' parents or by and you tax know, the taxpayer dollars. Yeah. dollars. Yeah. yeah. And, and it, it has considerably less impact or helps anyone. So I don't know. I mean, it's a complete, if it's a complete enough philosophy to help guide one in a pandemic or in a war or a, you know, a personal disaster, it seems like it's enough for me to, you know, it's enough for me to spend some time on. Did, do, do, do any of the Stoics deal with reality or truth? Yeah. Fu- I mean, fundamentally, I think, I think the, I mean, the, the, the first discipline of Stoicism is the discipline of perception and the final, uh, you know, the, the, of the four virtues, the fourth virtue is wisdom. So to me, the, the figuring out reality, what's happening, how to see things objectively, clearly, how to get to the essence of them, that's like, you know, a core precept of what we're trying to do here. But, but it seems like the thing in itself is not something that Stoics really worry about so much as the the circumstance, sure. the meaning, the the really almost the social setting, you know, the embedded social phenomena, rather than worrying about, hey, all I see is this pen, but what is this pen really? Who gives a fuck? Right, right. <laughs> so, no, exactly. They, you know, it's just in the way that you know priests used to de- debate how many angels could fit on a pen, right. and you know now philosophers are, how do we know we're not living in a computer simulation, right. or <laughs> right. how do I know this pen is really here, and how do I know if I have, you know. It feels like what a lot of really smart people do is put an incredible amount of brain power debating questions that have no basis on what like. So let's say let's say Elon Musk is right. And there's some evidence that we're in a computer simulation or whatever. What what would that fundamentally change for you? Like other than perhaps making it, uh, you know, uh, perhaps making life completely meaningless and suicide a you know a, a nice easy way out of the whole thing what what would these questions actually get you i don't think they really get you anything right because re- really what's important is the meaning we make yes yeah and, and so let's let's go down the simulation path a little bit i mean in a way our our brain is a simulator that's what it is. I mean, sure. and so this sort of intuition that we're in a simulation is actually correct in a sense. It's just not a giant computer that we're all part of. It's just this biological system that re-represents and re-recalls and reconstructs everything uh, and tries to predict the future on a constant basis. And so it's a simulator. It's what it is. Can't tell the thing in itself. Yeah, and, and if even if it is a computer simulation, how does that not just get you to the basic you know, reality that – most religious people are living in, which is that there's some higher power that's uh, largely in control and you might have some minor input over these decisions or that, you know, it's like, it it just sort of gets you right back into the same place. Right. And since that wasn't the intention to begin with, it strikes me that what a lot of these people are doing is either sort of masturbating or just distracting themselves from the sort of core existential questions that we have as human beings. Wasting time. Yeah, 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 yeah. I I heard this great quote. I was going to use it in my next book, but he forget who was saying it. But he he was saying it's like sort of the ultimate taboo uh, today is to talk about life as if it had any meaning. Uh. And and so I think a lot of the philosophical questions and a lot of philosophy, political or otherwise, is ultimately it sort of boils down to this kind of nihilism, which is that like 
nothing matters. An individual can't make a difference. History is irredeemably w- wicked. Everyone, every one of your ancestors was a shitty, horrible person. <laughs> you know, like like the the Constitution or the Declaration of yeah. Independence was hopelessly racist and contradictory. Yeah. You know, it just gets you to a place where you have ultimately no agency and no purpose. And I guess I just don't understand what that accomplishes. Uh, it, it, yeah, nihilism. Just looking at the historical sweep, nihilism comes around and doesn't do good things. I'm just, no. look, just look at Russia and Eastern Europe, and th- that's what brought us a lot of the horrors of that era. Yeah, and and I mean, I think about this now that I have kids. It's like, how do you like what version of history or life do you tell them? Even if you do accept certain things from science, or even if you do, you know, have a really good sense of how bad a lot of the things that happened in history are. You know, do you tell them the version of history that, like, do you tell them that we are the children of, you know? Uh, a parade of monsters and villains who, you know, who, who who always did the worst thing and meant none of it, like the sort of Howard Zinn version of history? Or yeah. do you tell them, like, obviously you also don't tell them the sort of propagandistic version of history, but like, or do you tell them like, hey, we're, we are inching towards progress and that an individual can make a difference. And I think at the... It, it's maybe like at the the core, like this sort of idea of courage and stoicism. It's striking me that like the ultimate form of courage is to have some some sense of hope or you know some belief that things matter. Uh, go go into that. Who says that? I mean, I was saying it, but I think <laughs> I think I think uh, actually General Mattis wrote wrote this recently. He was saying you know sort of cynicism is cowardice. Mm. And so, like, you know, do, can, do you believe in your own agency? Do you believe in the potential for change or progress? Do you believe even, um, you know, like, like, I think it's striking that we don't believe in the great man of history theory anymore. And that that's kind of a self-fulfilling or a self-effective or an effective truth in a way. If you don't believe that an individual can impact history, at the very least, you won't be the individual who has an impact on history. Right. Interesting. Well, uh, I still feel that the proper way to teach it, and this sort of dovetails into the lives of the cynics, the uh, not the cynics. The, uh, the that would which, be a much more boring book, maybe, or maybe more exciting. Um, that uh, hang on, I'm trying to. I, I used to be able to do three things at once, all the, really, really easily when I was younger. It was no problem. Now it stalls me out. My daughter started texting me just now. I'm like, ugh. So. Uh, Mattering courage, uh, cynics, stoics. Blah. Oh, I lost it. Well, so, so to go to this idea of why, why it's lies of the stoics and not lies of the cynics, I think that goes to the point, right? Obviously, for people who don't, cynic is a cynic is not just sort of a skeptical person. There was a school of philosophy known as the cynics, and Diogenes, the cynic, is the most famous, and he's this sort of contrarian, uh, you know, clever guy in Athens. He like sells all his possessions. He walks around in rags. He's known for these famous one-liners. I mean, other than him, there were no cynics that did anything. They were like, sort of they, what, they were the mentally ill of the time. They really yeah, were. They had an interesting. They were smart. But they were, uh, you know, they're they also were, kind of like the monks that, you know, uh, you know, get rid of all their possessions and live in the streets and are sort of. Yeah, but, they, they, but they're living in the streets and known for sort of urinating and defecating yes. and masturbating and all that stuff in the streets, too. So, <laughs> which is so which, which is, is kind of a little outside of philosophy, I'd say. That's another issue. 
No, which is which is sort of my point in that although there there is some sort of it is sort of questioning a lot of core assumptions, but ultimately the cynics don't do anything. And mm-hmm. I think what I admire about the Stoics is that these were real people who had real jobs. So they were philosophical, but they were also, you know, diplomats and generals and shopkeepers and soldiers and 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 emperors and and they they the reason I'm interested in the Stoics is not just because of what they say philosophically, but it, it seems from the evidence that their lives, that it was possible to live a productive, purposeful, happy, philosophical life. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the Stoics show that. Would they have called themselves philosophers? So that's actually an interesting question. Uh, Marcus Aurelius's translator, Gregory Hayes, uh, speculates that Actually, Marcus Aurelius might not have identified as a Stoic. Right. He might have just identified as a philosopher, which mm. I think, you know, I, I do think, you know, I don't personally, for instance, go around calling myself a Stoic. I, I see myself as a student of Stoic philosophy. But it's like, you know, if you're a black belt, do you go around calling yourself a, a karate master or something? No, like you you leave the labels to other people. Mm. Interesting. Um, I remember what I wanted to say, and that was about his- right. history itself, which was that I, I think probably the best way to t- to sort of frame history is largely well-meaning people, some of them a little aggressive and violent, who were trying the best they could to navigate their socio-historical context. And we will make mistakes too. And someone will look back on us and think we're idiots and, and horrible evil villains, as you say, a parade of horrible evil villains. <laughs> villains. That's true. But I mean, for instance, I was I – was, and we've talked, we've nerded out about this before, but I was thinking about Reconstruction recently. I just mm-hmm. read this great book, uh, Life of a Klansman, mm-hmm. which is about a, a sort of a the, the rise of the Klan and and uh, the sort of unredeemed South in the, in the aftermath of the Civil War. And it it, it is true that there's largely so well-meaning people, but then there's also truly bad people. And I feel like a lot of history and a lot of the shameful events of history are the good people not doing enough about the bad people. So like on, on daily Stokes, Instagram, we were posting this. Marcus Aurelius has a great quote. He says, and remember it's possible to commit an injustice by doing nothing. Uh, um, you know, I think the, the hard part though, when you're living in a certain moment of history is to understand where that is. Yes. You of know, course. it's really not easy for people. And uh, who, I, I think there's things that need to be stood up to right now that may look good and may be popular, but they need to be stood up against. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's always that. It's, I guess what my point is, it's it's not like in retrospect, it can seem like everyone was on the same page when it yeah. comes to slavery or right. racism. Right. But actually, there was you know a good portion of people who knew what, that what was happening was wrong. Mm-hmm. They just either weren't able to create a big enough coalition to do something about it, or they were they were too busy with like. I, I think it's often we know. Like, we know what's right. We just failed to do it. It's not that we accidentally did the wrong thing. It's that we didn't quite get over the hump. Back to us nerding out about Reconstruction. Uh, there, there, is a, there is a piece of that, what you've just referenced, that ha- my perspective has changed a little bit on. And let me sort of point out what it is, which is, yes, there were a, yeah. lot, of, there were a lot of abolitionists. There's a lot of them. And they knew slavery was wrong. They were still white supremacists. They still, they st- all of them, all of them. 
they, the black folk needed their, them to save – the white guy to save them from the other evil white guy so they can restore them to their – whatever. You know, sure. it, it was it, – it's always – which is fascinating that they couldn't get out of their white supremacist position. And, and that's then perspectivalism. I wonder if Sto- Stoicism has anything to say about this. Perspectivalism is really a challenging phenomenon for the human brain. You know, to 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 just the position from which I'm observing things affects what I see. It's it is an interesting thing. I've 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 been fascinated by the role that slavery plays inside uh, Stoicism, and because obviously in ancient Rome, Stoicism is is not just well accepted and popular, but even Epictetus, who you introduced me to, yeah. is a slave. Yeah. What's fascinating is even Epictetus's writings don't quite ever get to a point where he's questioning the institution of slavery. Not at all. Not and, at all. And, Not even close. He's he's and, he's telling you to accept it. It's just the nature of things and how to deal with it. Yeah. Right. And, but, but but now that, again, let's reframe. That kind of slavery was not a cat's. It was not a not a chattel slavery. It was really more about products of war and things like that, which is not defending it, but just re- no, just framing the specifics. It, it was just about dominance, right? Yeah, One yeah. power and yeah. But but I was just writing about this recently because so Thomas Jefferson is a fan of Stoicism and he, he's writing about it. And he's obsessed with it and he's this brilliant man who has these sort of conflicted views about slavery, mm-hmm. but. But he's writing in one, I think it's in notes from Virginia or something. He's going, he's like, but, you know, the slaves in Rome, even though Roman slavery was probably worse as an institution, he's like, but the Roman slaves, some of them were so smart. You know, he's talking about, uh, you know, he's talking about Epictetus and Terence and Cyrus. And he's, he's like, you know, he says, if, if, if the African slaves were as smart as oh <laughs> see the white supremacy that, again, right? Then, there then it is. He's like, then it would be different. Right. <laughs> and it's, it's, what's interesting, right. Is to your point about perspective, he's not, he, even though he's this brilliant man, he's not able to wrap his head around the fact that, well, the reason there's no Epictetus in America is because it was punishable by death to teach a slave to read or write. Yeah. So so it, it's like he can't even wrap his head. It's like he's saying, like, look, if the if the African slaves were smarter and better, yeah. uh, we wouldn't be enslaving them. Meanwhile, he's got his boot on their neck at preventing them from from learning. And and there's actually I was just reading uh, Henry Louis Gates has this book about Phyllis Wheatley, the um, the the African poet. She's this slave who becomes a poet. And she was she was so brilliant. She was the first African, like talented African person that the founders had to wrestle with. She wrote like poems about George Washington and mm. she met a lot of the founders. It, you could see the cognitive dissonance that they were struggling with because the entire premise of slavery was based on these you know, preposterous pseudoscientific understanding of, of species and brains and whatever. So, so they believed that, that, that they were the superior species. And then they see this person who's, you know, extremely talented and smart. And instead of wrestling with that, they obviously, they, they find excuses for why it's not the same, but uh, that, that perspective, it, it, determines the world in a lot of ways, how we see it. I'm going to text you an article. You still have a 213 number? Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, the, the African perspective of slavery is also another piece that we need to contend with that we have not begun to struggle with yet. And it's a really it's this interesting article I just sent you. Um, okay. Uh, and it's – I don't think it's right, but it's an interesting – it's struggling with this phenomenon. And I, and I have a feeling – 
all of this, the Stoics may be a great source for us all to kind of wrangle with this. So let's talk about the Stoics. That's what the book's about. Okay. I enjoyed it. I, I love historical kinds of books. And you had recommended to me the Fire Before the Fire or something. What was the thing about the Roman? Oh, the Storm Before storm, the Storm. Storm Before the Storm, which I read, uh, and, and the Life of the Intellectuals. I read that too. And back to your comment about who the previous uh, – the previous uh, sort of uh, purveyors of history where the intellectuals were all a bunch of assholes for sure. Right. <laughs> really right. serious, seriously a bunch of assholes. And that book brings that uh, home. Uh, but the storm before the storm will fuck you up, right? It, it did fuck me you, up. It yeah. did fuck me up. So, well, tell me how it fucked you up. And it well, was an important so, – and Buffering was important reading for the life of the Stoics too. Yes. Because some definitely. of that stuff was in there. So go ahead. Well, so I think a lot of people go, okay, Rome was doing well, and then Julius Caesar comes and he overthrows the no. Roman Republic. Nope. And <laughs> Turns out this, not. <laughs> right. The, the Storm Before the Storm is about the one, basically a hundred years <laughs> that that almost made that a foregone conclusion. The, the sort of the arms race and the collapse of norms and the, the, the breaking down of the institutions. And you really, re- like, it makes you realize, like, Okay, where is America in this cycle, and probably not in a good place? Well, right. Uh, the, the, it's a cautionary tale for where we are now. But yeah. I also read it and I thought, oh, we're not like that. Now, who knows? <laughs> that's that's, right. that's a fool's you know the fool's interpretation. Sure. But but the magnitude of the violence and murder and mob sort of uh, extraordinary mob violence again was really and, – and the rep- repetition of it. I, I thought it was something that kind of happened a couple times in Roman history across – you know, there, there's examples of senators getting up and talking you know, and giving a big presentation while they have their their relative executed behind them and stuff. It's like sure. I, I'd heard of that happening. It happened a lot. It's incredible that it, there, there wasn't any kind of force that came in and settled this all down. It would only settle down for a few years at a time. Yeah, or it's like someone would be giving a talk and it'd be unpopular, and then the mob would just tear them limb to literally, you know, limb from limb. Yeah, yeah it's 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 very, and it, it sort of just makes you. I think what it made me very cognizant of, and I think it's something that America is struggling with right now in this very election. It's like when you have one side breaking the rules, the in, the impulse of the other side is to break the rules, but at the same time, if only one side is playing by the rules. Uh, it, it's it's one version of a cycle, but then if both sides are breaking the rules, that creates a cycle. You need someone to come in and gather up enough force or moral authority to be able to sort of put a hard stop to the cycle. Well, that's what Machiavelli said, right? He yeah. Sa- he said you got to have a strong man come in, and, and then you restore a republic. That was sort of his that was sort of his construct. The prince, well, you have to have a prince I come guess in. It's a- I mean, he thought Cesare Borgia was the example of what you need, and he came into the horrible stuff. Well, I, I just mean like as a as a recent political example, it's like okay, so in 2016 or you know 2015 2016, you have the Republicans basically steal a Supreme Court seat from a sitting president. Uh, you have them steal a, 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 a seat from a sitting president, and then now you have them sort of jam- potentially jamming through another one, which will create. Uh, incentives for the Democrats to potentially pack the court or add Senate seats. And so, so that this it's, you know, rule breaking begets rule breaking uh, begets norm breaking. And so what you need is somebody who can come in and go, 
okay, we're going to do a reset yeah. and stop that mm. or, or else it spirals <laughs> out of control and usually into violence very, very quickly. And what would the reset look like? Would it be we need to restore constitutional you know, uh, primacy and the originalist kind of view of things or how do we do it? I mean, from what I've heard from smart people, and, and I, it'd be like, if there's some ideal scenario where the Republicans don't jam through a, uh, through a justice, there's some agreement where uh, they, you know, th- there's some agreement where the one side agrees to do this, the other side agrees not to pack the court, and then they sort of go back to business as usual. You need, you need some sort of uh, uh, detente or, what, or whatever. Uh, de- is it detente? Detente, uh, yeah, detente. Yeah, detente, uh, to, to where, where, where it stops the escalation mm. because, you know, uh, in, mm. inevitably, where as as uh, as von Clausewitz says, you know, war is just the extension of politics by other means. Mm. If the political system breaks down, what happens is violence, and I think you're seeing that. You know, people feel like they don't have input uh, in, in this area, and then they that they react with violence. It's not necessarily rational or or uh, no, sorry, it's not it's not exactly productive, yeah. but there is a logic to it. So, what would the Stoics say about this? How and whom would you choose? There, there are a lot of different kind of flavors of stoicism out there, and you expose us to that, which I thought was fascinating. So I'm fascinated with the example of Cato because Cato is on the one hand this deeply principled. He's he's like what people think you would need in a situation like this. Mm-hmm. They're like, you need the guy with moral authority who never bends, who can't break, uh, you know, who has iron will to enforce what you know the norms are. But actually, there's this famous scene where so uh, Pompey comes back uh, to Rome uh, and and the the Roman system's falling apart. This is in in that book. It's also in Lives. Um, in, in the, Pompey, it's in the uh, Storm Before the Storm and in Lives of yeah. the Stoics. Yeah. So Pompey approaches Cato and says, uh, "Hey, let's do a marriage alliance." And, like he's like, "I'm powerful. You're powerful. Let's align." And and Cato says, I will not be bribed by the way of women's apartments. He basically <laughs> says, like, you, you, I see what you're doing. You're trying to team up with me uh, through connecting our families. And I'm not going to do it. And so at the time, a lot of people celebrate this as, you know, his sort of in, incorruptibility. But what happens is Pompey goes, oh, OK, well, then I'm going to align with Caesar instead. And so so basically Cato's intransigence drives Pompey into the arms of Caesar, who's right. arguably much worse. Right. And and that is what eventually leads to the overthrow of the Roman public. And Plutarch is writing, he's like, it's ironic that the very thing that Cato dedicated himself to preserving, he brings about by mm-hmm. his inability to compromise or collaborate. And Interesting. so in, in some ways, I'm actually, and this is probably more recent than people, I'm actually somewhat relieved by uh, or, or encouraged by the hope of someone like Joe Biden in the sense that he's a he's historically a moderate. Yeah. He has a long you know history of Washington wheeling and dealing. What we actually need are some of those old school like Henry Clay style yeah. compromises or yeah. deals. Yeah, that's right. I agree. Even those those end up, you know, kicking the can down the road a little bit. Sure. Uh, it, you got to buy yourself for, some time, though. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of agree with you on that. Um, uh, Seneca, I yeah. did. I was surprised to see your evaluation of him. I did not know he was such a 
interesting fellow. <laughs> well, I love Seneca as a writer. I, I knew and that, and I, thought, I was really surprised. Yeah. I did not know his life. Go ahead. It's really, it's really hard, though, the more you it, – it's almost like – you know what? Seneca is a lot like the intellectuals in that Paul Johnson book. Beautiful from a distance – and then if you get if you peek behind the curtain too much, some of the some of the uh, the allure wears off. Mm-hmm. The humanity I mean, seeps in. <laughs> yeah, or the, or just the contradictions, or yeah. the. I mean, Seneca is you know uh, he's the most brilliant writer and thinker of his time, and yet he's also Nero's primary advisor. Right. And you know, it's not it's it's not even it's not a Trump thing, right? Where you're like, oh, but he has some bad political beliefs. I mean, Nero's like murdering his mother and mistresses and dispatching political enemies. I mean, like Nero is the worst. Nero is like on Hitler levels of bad. Yeah, was was he he bad from the beginning? Wasn't there hopes for him at the beginning, and he just went bad really fast? That's so. So the first five years of of Nero's regime. The, the, I think they call it like the Quin, Quincinium Neronium or something like it's the golden years of Nero. That's when he built the there, castles and stuff, right? Yeah. He, he did a good job. And yeah. they, obviously we don't know historically, but one argument is that that's Seneca, that Seneca was in charge for the first five years, uh. did a really, really good job, and then is sort of pushed out. There's a let Nero be Nero kind of movement uh, after, a, after a time. And it's once Nero assumes command that that Seneca's influence begins to wane. Well, now that we said goodbye to summer, it's time to get back in the groove of autumn, everybody. The kids are back in school. Leaves are changing. A lot is changing. And this is a every day seems like something new these days. And uh, people are overlooking taking care of yourself uh, and also looking your best. It's an important time to pay attention to these things. Uh, And with Plexiderm, all you need is 10 minutes and you can look 10 years younger. Plexiderm is a great product. Uh, We've used it in our house for quite some time. It's a clinically studied serum that gives you the appearance of the right kinds of changes. You can visibly reduce wrinkles, fine lines, and under-eye bags in just minutes. My wife is... uh, makes great study of all these different products, and she signs off on Plexiderm. You can take up to 10 years off your appearance in less than 10 minutes. The results will last for hours, so you can take the family, uh, you know, looking your best the whole time while you're out doing autumn things. Like, I don't know, if you're up in New England or Washington, you do some apple picking. You can try a six-application trial pack for just fourteen ninety-five with free shipping when you visit buyplex.com slash Drew. Careful in the spelling, B-U-Y-P-L-X dot com slash Drew. Or call 800-685-1292 and say code DREW. The order also comes with free shipping and a 30-day money-back guarantee. Make the wrinkles, lines, and under-eye bags disappear with Plexiderm. Visit Biplex, B-Y-P-L-X dot com slash DREW or call 800-685-1292 and say code DREW at checkout. Summer is in the rearview mirror. Now it's time to get back out into the autumn groove. Kids, hopefully going back to school where you are and... We see all the changes of autumn coming in. There's a lot changing, but uh, it's hard to find time for you to take the time you need to take care of yourself and to look your best. Well, with Plexiderm, all you need is 10 minutes and you can look 10 years younger. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that gives your appearance the right kind of changes. You visibly can reduce wrinkles, fine lines, and undry bags in just minutes. It's an excellent product. Take up to 10 years off your appearance in less than 10 minutes. The results will last for hours, so you can take the amateur. Results will last for hours. You can take the family out and, uh, you know, 
do do there's a lot of things to do in the fall and let's pay attention to ourselves we feel our best when we go do these things you can try a six application trial pack for just 14.95 with free shipping when you visit byplex.com slash drew b-y-p-l-x careful in the spelling b-u-y-p-l-x dot com slash drew or call 800-685-1292 and say code drew this order also comes with free shipping and a 30-day money-back guarantee. Make those wrinkles, lines, and under-eye bags disappear with Plexiderm. Visit buyplex.com, B-U-Y-P-L-X.com, slash Drew, or call 800-685-1292 and say code Drew at checkout. If there's one mineral you should be worried about not getting enough of, of course, it is magnesium. You've heard me talk about it. The body's master mineral with over 300 critical reactions, including detoxification, fat metabolism, energy, even digestion, is all influenced by magnesium. I remember when I was doing endocrine rotations, my fellow used to pound on us about magnesium and their problems, two big problems. Magnesium has been largely missing from the U.S. soil since the 1950s, which explains why it's estimated that up to 80% of the population may be deficient. And also, most supplements contain only one or two forms of magnesium, when in reality there are seven that your body needs to benefit from. If you take that latter fact into consideration, is it not logical to conclude that 99% of the population is likely deficient in two or more of the essential forms of magnesium? Good news is, is that when you do get all seven forms of magnesium, pretty much every function, it gets upgraded from your brain to your sleep. Uh, pain and inflammation even can be affected. It's all improving and it improves fast. That's why I'm excited about what my friends over at BioOptimizers, makers of industry-leading digestive supplements, have just created. The research team has recently formulated the ultimate magnesium supplement with all seven forms of the mineral. They even include trace amounts of something called monoatomic magnesium, which helps makes all the other forms more bioavailable. This is the most complete magnesium product ever created, and until or unless someone comes out with a better one, I suggest you give this a try. Bioptimizers calls the product Magnesium Breakthrough, and they're running a special promotion for our listeners at bioptimizers.com slash drew. That is B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash D-R-E-W. You get an additional 10% off the normal package price with coupon code Dr. Drew. With this simple one action, you can reverse magnesium deficiency in all its forms and upgrade the performance of your body and possibly even how you look and feel. The Magnesium Breakthrough promotion is only while quantities last at buyoptimizers.com slash Drew. That is B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash D-R-E-W. And make sure you use the coupon code Dr. Drew to get 10% off your order. It's funny, I I had a crazy dream last night where I was thinking about these kinds of issues when I woke up. Somehow I was driving in the dream on the German Autobahn. (laughs) And when I woke up, I thought, wow, Hitler built that thing. How weird. And then I I thought of people I knew who lived during his regime who supported him because they thought their their position was essentially – he built us soccer fields and we had jobs and we what what are we supposed to know that he's an asshole you know and and that idea of building an economy how that went so wrong i tried to figure out how that happened you know cuz at first it was just about building an economy and then it all of a sudden became oh we need more and that's then we need Czechoslovakia, we need the Sudetenland, and now we need blah, 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 blah. I, and that's the narrow part right that's narrow i think so yeah well and and what these what these figures manage to do is sort of play people off of each other and off of themselves. It's like it's like it, for Hitler, it was never about building the freeways. It was understanding that building the freeways might give him the power that he wanted. So so it's like people are like, well, I want the freeways, so I'm going to get something temporarily out of this bargain, but I'm not going to. You know, you end up. 
I didn't well, think they, they didn't know where he was going. They didn't when they were right. getting the freeways. They didn't know where they were going to end up at all. Right. They just right. liked the so freeway. You're, yeah, you're, yeah. You're sort of you're being you're being slowly corrupted. Yeah, yeah. And and you don't really realize it. And and for instance, that's where we are politically right now. Again, not to compare it at all to the scale of Hitler, but you know, it's like if you haven't drawn the line up until this point, if you're a Republican or you're someone in Washington, you haven't drawn the line over this, 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 and this, and this. It's really hard to then suddenly go, ah, here is the line. Mm. Now I'm enforcing it because you've created this kind of you're, creep. It's like you're creep. Stu- yeah, you're stuck in this sort of abusive relationship almost. <laughs> and it is an abusive relationship. Like mm-hmm. when you look at what the other politicians and the generals thought of Hitler, I mean, it's, they all became aware that he was like a fool. But, you know, now Hitler has them, especially as the war goes on, Hitler has them trapped because, you know, now they're worried are the Russians or the allies going to be worse to us than Hitler? Right. Right. And so uh, you're, you know, you've, you've sort of made your bed and, and and that's what happens to Seneca, right? Seneca sort of goes along with Nero. He probably stays longer than he should eventually realizes like, Oh shit, what have I gotten myself into? I got to get out. And he says to Nero, like, I'm ready to go. And Nero says, I can't let you leave. He's like, it'll look bad for me if I let you leave. And so, so now Seneca's trapped, and it's a very cushy trap, but it's a trap. And then he, at the end, he comes to understand he's going to be killed. Yeah, and and there is some belief that he was he's active in a conspiracy to assassinate Nero, or at least he covers for some of the people. It's sort of like a an Erwin Rommel, where uh, because he was so prestigious, conspirators wanted to use him, and so ultimately, just like with with Rommel and, and Hitler. Basically, Nero asks for Seneca to commit suicide, sort of on threat of, you know, if you don't do this, it will be even worse for you. Mm-hmm. And and so in this moment, Seneca then sort of stripped of all pretense, stripped of all options, does manage to sort of be great and heroic and kind of almost Christ-like in how he goes out. But the argument is like, was it self-serving? Yeah. Was it too little too late? You know, was it all grand historical gesture was well, it he, cer- he was certainly it? did not live a christ-like life yes yeah. which is incredible though that he and jesus were born in the same year wow that's hard to that's hard to wrap your head around right yeah because the the lives were so different and they were both born in provinces of the roman emperor and the roman empire wow they they both are brilliant thinkers slash you know philosophers and then they both get executed. It's it's but but yeah. Uh-huh. And the other crazy wrinkle is Seneca's brother Gaio is in the Bible. Oh no way! Where? Yeah. So he judges. Uh, I think it's Saint Paul is brought up on charges in one of the Roman provinces, and uh, Seneca's brother is the judge who lets him go. Wow. Yeah. So it's a small. That's the other thing is how small the world was back then. Did, did even Sen- though there's 50 million people, it's like. They're bumping into each other. Well, and and the fifty million was spread all over the globe, right? I mean, I think the Roman Empire was like thirty to fifty million okay. people, but yeah, spread out over basically all of Europe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, it's so interesting. So, were there any surprises for you in the lives of the Stoic? Definitely. Um, there's a Stoic named Diotimus who uh, 
who basically like right now, if you ask someone what the word Epicurean means, they'd think it's like a hedonist, this sort of, you know, terrible glutton. Right. That comes because this stoic Diotimus frames Epicurus with a series of sort of forged letters that become widely spread and contribute to his reputation as a hedonist. And you're like, oh, here was this stoic who who purported to believe X, Y and Z and then sort of gets caught in this academic rivalry and uh, totally uh, destroys his own reputation. Let's describe the reality of Epicurus. Epicurus really was about sort of, um, I wouldn't say minimalism, but sort of uh, refraining from excess, right? Enjoying, yes. but you – know, and, and, and it was sort of a – and it became known as some sort of gourmet or you know, gourmand kind of thing, which had nothing to do with Epicureanism. Yeah, he was like the, the ordinary pleasures, the small pleasures, right. the, the you know the, the the pleasure of a meal with friends, yeah. not gorging yourself until you're sick. Yeah, yeah. And then and then how did this guy frame him? So he wrote these letters that were supposedly written by Epicurus that were totally untrue, that mm. were sort of putting all these words in his mouth. And uh, and then eventually he's caught and brought up on charges. There's some uh, some uh, argument that he was executed for it, which seems probably unlikely. But the, I, I I was fascinated. It's like, again, knowing what's right philosophically and then getting caught up in your own petal, petty rivalries or ambitions, like just like Seneca, like it's possible to fall short. And in fact, a lot of the Stoics did. Who else? Give me another one. Well, Cicero's a great, uh, in terms of falling short, Cicero's a great example of, you know, probably nobody wrote from an academic perspective about uh, Stoicism better than than Cicero. And yet, sort of when when, uh, the rubber met the road, nobody was more sort of vacillating and whiny and entitled and soft than Cicero. Sort of of coward. Yeah, basically. It's like, uh, he just... His philosophy in in the Civil War was, I'm going to wait to see who wins and then pick the stronger side. <laughs> he, he was he it's, reading about him was a little bit like reading about Seneca. Like really, yes, <laughs> it's like yes. You know, but Seneca still surprised me more somehow. I think so. I mean, I, I, it, it's kind of like that intellectuals book where oftentimes what makes you so brilliant is your ambition. Mm. That's why you read these things and study these things. And then that ambition can often be at odds with what you know to be the right thing. Like nobody wants to commit political suicide and sometimes doing the right thing is committing political suicide. Yeah, but in a weird way, stoicism should have helped guide them to stay within the bounds of what's right. That's the surprising part. They had trouble living by their own philosophy of living. Sure, but how many Christians cheat on their spouses? Yeah, or, yeah, you know, yeah, fair enough. You know, it's. I think it, it's a. Uh, it's that's the challenge. It's like learning the thing is is half of it, and then following it's the other half. And if you were advising someone right now to sort of begin looking into Stoicism, where would you start? If, and, and by the way, what would the goal be in in our today's day? You know, what, why why Stoicism? Why not? Uh, you know, Aristotelianism. So, well, I, I think Aristotelianism uh, is probably, I don't even honestly know what it would actually tell you to do day to day, right? It, it is a more complete philosophy, let's say, but 
but how does it help you in the real world? I'm, I guess I'm less sure of that, but Seneca in one of his letters to well, Lucilius. Let me just to, say, in, in the Nicomachean ethics, the whole idea was he, Nic, Nicom, Nicomachus, I think was his name, was his son, and this was right. advice to his son about how to live. And so True. things like friendships and, you know, there's stuff in there that's sort of how to live stuff. I think so. Happiness. Let, let, certainly in a less pithy, uh, applicable way, but uh, I, in one of his letters to Lucilius Seneca saying, he's like, look, the path to wisdom, he says, like, he says, just acquire one thing every day. So it's something that fortifies you against poverty and death and adversity and doubt. So he's like, just one thing a day. And so that's kind of actually how I think about it. It's like, if I can get like one quote or one insight or one little, you know, story or something, and that's kind of how I try to write as well. But it's like, I think a lot of people think it's like, oh, I have to convert or I have to like have this huge epiphany. Yeah. Really, it's like it's like you build a brick wall brick by brick. But let, let's talk about that a little more. So so wisdom is a major virtue for Stoics, yes? Yes. All right. Mm-hmm. And I think you and I would both agree that wisdom fundamentally is two or three things. It's, it's cognitive sort of intellectual skill and development. It's probably experience in the world, yeah. right? Uh, and it's probably, and I would distinguish, and I know Aristotle did this, skill. So it's yeah. skill, it's techne, it's phronesis. These are words that Aristotle used. And then it's intellectual learning, whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, but the experiential part uh, sort of came to mind for me recently because here you have uh, – we're, we're having this conversation on the eve or the next day after President Trump stands up and goes, I've been to school on coronavirus. I've been to school on it now. I've had yeah. an experience. And I thought, yeah, that's interesting. And, and we don't maybe talk about that enough that experience does change perspective too, right? That's yeah. one way we do really do change perspective. And is that what the Stoics are talking about? I think so. It, it is a it is a good point. I think often really smart people have trouble wrapping their head around the fact that not everyone learns just by hearing something. Like some people really do have to experience it to let, understand. Let, let it. me tell you, as some two, in two settings, I can speak to this personally. One setting is learning as a physician. As a physician, you learn the experience of sitting at the bedside and experiencing the case and then treating and moving through the process of the you know the sure. course of the case that's all i mean there's some intellectual pieces you're reading the literature and reading the science of what's you know what the latest things are but the experience is the teacher right. the case is the teacher and the same thing is for therapy Therapy, you're having an experience in the room with another human. You're co-creating an experience, and that's what changes you. And 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 I, I guarantee you, I can't think of anything else in my life that changes my who you are and your therefore your perspective more than those kinds of experiences. I think that's right. I think that's right. And and so look, some people are under are really good at understanding things in the abstract, understanding them immediately. And then other people learn differently. There's this great comic that's going around where it's like sort of knowledge, uh, experience. Then those come together and it creates insight, sort of a connecting of the dots. Yeah, which I like. Yeah. And then the joke is that uh, a conspiracy theory is connecting dots that that don't yeah. exist or yeah. don't connect. Right. But, um, I think the idea of, to me, wisdom is, is the 
accumulation of both experiences and knowledge and the sort of the blending or the exponential effect of the combination of those things. So, so some, it, oftentimes, uh, you know, you read something and it makes sense to you and then you go and you experience it and you realize that you only understood a, a small fraction of it. Um, like even with the pandemic, like obviously I've spent the last 10 or so years writing about the Stoics. I've read meditations dozens and dozens of times. It really only hit me this year what it fully meant that Marcus Aurelius was writing this during the Antonine Plague. And then when you have, because, and now that we're in the middle of a pandemic and you see the effect of it and you can kind of imagine what it must have been like 2000 years ago to be in the middle of a plague outbreak, almost every one of the words, it, ch- it fundamentally changes what he's saying. So that like un- the events of the last year have unlocked a whole different understanding of a book that never changed. Really interesting. It, it's like, it's, I, I'm hearkening to things I hear people, professionals say about therapy, which is therapy unfolds in a lived experience. Yeah. You're going out in the world and coming back. Uh, and so anything particular jump out from what he said uh, in the plague? Well, so he, he has this line in there where he goes like, you know, um, uh, a plague can, can take your life, but it only harms you if it, if it hurts your character, if it changes your character. Sounds like Epictetus. And, yeah. yeah. And, and, but, but you're like, oh, that, that's like an interesting metaphor. And then you realize like maybe it wasn't a metaphor at all. Uh. Like he was really talking about the actual plague that he was in. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Uh, you know, so, or, or, you know, when, when he, he talks about, so he goes, because uh, he, he has these kind of dialogues with himself. So he goes, it's unfortunate that this happened. And then he goes, no, 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 no. It's fortunate that this happened. And it's fortunate that it happened to me and not to someone else because they wouldn't have been able to bear it like I was. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and, and that, and so you're like, okay, that's interesting in the abstract. And then when you, when you realize Marcus Aurelius lost six or seven children before they made it to adulthood. And then you have children, you go, Oh my God, what if he's talking about that? Right. Like he's not talking about, uh, you know, breaking his favorite pen. He's talking about the devastating loss of a, of an infant or something. And you go, Oh, this is operating on a whole level that I can barely even begin to comprehend and need to, to more fully and and humbly study. That's what I love about him because it really is his a look inside. It's his thought mm-hmm. process, and it's it's in real time, and he doesn't go back and correct it or, or you know. No. You know I mean? it's just these are what he's thinking, and it's just really fascinating and and reassuring in an interesting way. Even when you say you reframe it the way you have, it's still reassuring. Well, it's it's maybe the only book ever published that. A certainly philosophy book ever published that was never intended for an audience. So, so, you know, even Aristotle is writing for his son. So maybe he's trying to project how he wants to be, or, you know, like yeah. even my books, right. There's an element of performance in them and you're, 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 it's not that you're pandering to the audience, but you are, you're certainly performing for the audience. Right. Yeah. Um, to, to get an unvarnished look inside the spiritual and, mental life of the most powerful man in the world and to not and to have it be sort of filled with goodness is just an incredible document yeah it's a diary yeah yeah which is 
but kind of but i think if people hear that it's a diary they think it's filled with like personal minutiae no 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 it's a philosophical diary yes yes which i don't think is really a genre but should be Summer is in the rearview mirror. Now it's time to get back out into the autumn groove. Kids, hopefully going back to school where you are, and we see all the changes of autumn coming in. There's a lot changing, but uh, it's hard to find time for you to take the time you need to take care of yourself and to look your best. Well, with Plexiderm, all you need is 10 minutes, and you can look 10 years younger. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that gives your appearance the right kind of changes. You visibly can reduce wrinkles, fine lines, and undry bags in just minutes. It's an excellent product. Take up to 10 years off your appearance in less than 10 minutes. The results will last for hours, so you can take the am- the results will last for hours. You can take the family out and, uh, you know, do do. F- there's a lot of things to do in the fall, and let's pay attention to ourselves. We feel our best when we go do these things. You can try a six-application trial pack for just $14.95 with free shipping when you visit Byplex.com slash Drew, B-Y-P-L-X, careful on the spelling, B-U-Y-P-L-X dot com slash Drew or call 800-685-1292 and say code Drew. This order also comes with free shipping and a 30-day money-back guarantee. Make those wrinkles, lines, and undry bags disappear with Plexiderm. Visit Byplex.com, B-U-Y-P-L-X dot com slash Drew or call 800-685-1292 and say code Drew at checkout. And it's interesting. I'm thinking about autobiogra- autobiographies that are that were before we'd invented autobiographies. Yeah. So it's the Confessions by uh, Saint. No, I'm blanking on his name. The Saint first, Augustine. Saint Augustine, uh, and then again attempted later by Rousseau, who also did Confessions, and and was a real shitty person. Oh my God! I, the fact that that. that uh, that's that's we'll do that another day. <laughs> Just talk about a, a shitty. Flaw. I mean, the, he was a horrible person with horrible ideas, and was usurped by the French Revolution as a leading sort of philosophical framework from which to proceed. Re- horrible, 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 horrible. Um, but Saint Augustine was a great guy. He was, yes. he was the first. Uh, it really, if you read the Confessions of Saint Augustine, it reads like the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he was sort of the first sex addict alcoholic who had a moment of clarity because he, he talks about his addictions and his mom had them too. And she found it in relig- hyper-religiosity. She became a Manichaean, I think they called it. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's just fascinating to me that he has this moment of clarity and just, just the way my patients talk about it. And then he finds well, a spiritual moment and he finds his way out of all the addictive behavior. It's it's beautiful, right? That yeah. like you're reading this guy. What is he writing in like eight hundred? Eight hundred AD, I think. Eight hundred AD. Yeah, and and yeah, he's talking as if he is exactly the same yeah. as a regular, yeah. a, as you or I. Yeah. And to me, that's what when you recommended that I read the Stoics, and I I bought Marcus Aurelius. I remember I, I was about halfway through, so I get to book five. And he ha- let, let me actually let, I'll just read it because it's so incredible. And, and by the way, Rousseau's confessions are really like mea culpa. It's me, and yeah. I've done these horrible things. And look at me, look at me. Saint Augustine was like, "Whoa, what a miracle!" <laughs> let me tell you about this miracle that happened to me. So you can imagine, I get this book. I'm I'm like 20 years old, and and this is the this is the passage of of book five. He goes, "At dawn, when you have trouble getting out of bed, tell yourself I have to go to work as a human being. What do I have to complain for? Uh, complain of I'm going to do what I was born for, the things I was brought in this world to do, or is this what I was created for? To huddle under the blankets and stay warm." 
but it's nicer here. And then he says, so you were born to feel nice instead of doing things and experiencing them. I love it. You're like, I love it. I'm 19 years old and I don't want to get up for my 8am class. You know, (laughs) this is so real and modern. I love it. I love it. And, and, you know, back to your com, your comment about knowledge and experience kind of coming together Mm -hmm. in, in a weird way, uh, philosophy kind of got off track by separating those two things, right? Experience became phenomenology, and then knowledge became epistemology, and and they don't didn't really communicate anymore once they marched off into those different directions. Well, I was thinking about this because I was writing about some of the early Stoics in the book, like Zeno and Cleanthes and yeah. Chrysippus. Yeah. They were these like characters. They yeah. were like they were followed. People were like. You know, what is he doing for a living? And why is he wearing a shirt? They were like, they were really like observing them to see if they were living up to what they were saying. And I was just thinking about like, who cares what a Harvard professor is doing? Like they have no relevance in modern life. And whether they cheat on their wife or whether they lie or whether they're, you know, they, they tip poorly, none of this, we, we find this to be totally irrelevant from what they write about, which is to me, absurd. Yeah, yeah. So philosophy should be attached to lived experience, and philosopher yes. should be a living embodiment of that philosophy. And and for my my readers, obviously, primarily interact with my writing about it, and I can even see in them they they think that because I've written about it clearly, obviously, this must be how I go about the world or how I how I. Uh, effortlessly exist as a yeah. human being. Yeah. And in fact, no, I'm actually writing about it because it's hard for me to get out of bed in the morning. Yeah. Or whatever. Well, like, and, and that's the thing about stoicism. It, it, it's hard to do. They, yes. they never say it's easy ever. They say, no, 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 it's hard. It's hard. And that, that the, the, what you just read from Marcus Aurelius is a perfect sort of example of that. It's like, what are you meant to do here? To lie in the <laughs> sleep, lie under the warm blankets? I don't think so. And to me, almost wisdom and the self-discipline, those are the two easiest, clearest cut of the virtues. But then when you start to get into courage and justice, now it's it's so complicated, right? Because it, it's like, are you being courageous enough? Are you being courageous for the right things? You know, are you going along with this because it is the right thing? Or are you going along with it because you're afraid of saying that it's not the right thing? It's a, you know, that that's really what I've been trying to sort of think about and process in my own life. And I think obviously events, whether it's the racial justice stuff or the pandemic or, you know, the, the sort of things that are happening politically, it really does force you to wrestle with these questions. Are you surprised you're still working uh, on stoicism? Um, or did you, when you no, started, think this is this is my calling? I think th- I think it's that. I mean, I I feel like I've only begin begun to explore. I think I've only scratched the surface of it. So I think it's wow. really, really that's fast. that's that's phenomenal. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Gary's not in your head too. Isn't that, isn't that surprised to hear? I, it is a surprise, yeah. but I'm also very gratified to hear it because Ryan's fascinating, and I I love the fact that he thinks there's still so much it, to do. It, it gives us oh, all something you. to chase after uh, to grab your coattails and to hang on you know that's yeah. too nice no no it isn't no it isn't it, it's just the fact and uh well i love the book i love all your books thank but you. uh this one this one was a little bit of a departure and uh thank you for having me read the storm before the storm that set me up for this and made it so interesting for me because i kind of understood what was going on in the world with these guys some of them yeah in the world during some of these guys anyway let's put it that way and I got was, another one for you that you right, would like. That right. uh, I just read this book. Actually, uh, somebody recommended it to me. It's called American Bloomsbury, huh. and it, 
It's about how Louisa May Alcott, Emerson, Melville, uh, Hawthorne, Thoreau, all lived in the same town at the yeah. same time and were all friends. This is all the transcendentalists. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, they, they were a pretty nutty group. And having yes. having lived through the 60s, you, you won't have this perspective that I have. They they felt very modern and familiar to me because uh, oh, everybody sure. in the 60s were all like them, very right. much like them. The personality – Adam's mom is, would be one of them. In reality, oh. so she kind of has some of those qualities that Louisa May Alcott had and things. And, sure, you know it's it's and it's all very homespun, small, you know, but with big intentions yeah. and ideas. They were in uh, Massachusetts or Connecticut, yeah, right outside Concord. Boston, I think. Yeah, What's Concord, that? Massachusetts, in Concord. Wow, that's interesting. That's that's you know that's really is as as Boston is set up now. That's really part of Boston. Concord's right, right. there as you leave sort of west. Interesting. Well, listen, my friend. Always a pleasure to talk to you. If you're out here, let me know. Uh, I may. It. I'm. Where you are? You near Austin? Yeah. Uh huh. I'm being uh, urged. Uh, Recruited? Yes, aggressively. And uh, if Segura ends up moving out there, I'm gonna have to go out there once a month or something. So I'll look for you when I get out there. Yeah, please. Everyone I know is moving to Texas. Yeah, and uh, well, certainly Californians. They are fleeing, yes. fleeing, fleeing. You can't get out. It's a. It's a fucking mess here. And uh, yeah, Texas, I'm sure, has its own issues. <laughs> but uh, at least, well, as, not- I, as I was saying, that you definitely have more freedom in Texas, which is great. But then everyone else has freedom, and that is the uh-huh. that is the tension. That should be your next book, right there. <laughs> That's right about that. All right, my friend. I will talk soon. Where do you want people to go? Uh, DailyStoke.com, Daily Stoke Podcast, and uh, RyanHoliday.net. I take a cold shower every day, and I think every single day when the cold water hits me, Amor Fati. Tell there you go. The, like a true stoic. Ryan has these little, little what are they, coins? Medallions. Medallions. Coins, challenge coins. And not merely to bear what is necessary, but to love it is, a, is something that I, it goes through in my mind every morning. It's a pretty good thing. It's a good, it's good yeah. practice. Yeah. If, you, if you start with a cold shower, the, the rest of the day is probably – uh, looking up. It, well, don't get too aggressive on this because we may disappoint people. But but it is it is uh, it, it, the practice. There's a practice to stoicism that yes. uh, adds to your adds to your well being and adds to your adds to your yeah your well being. I'd say. All right, my friend. Again, we'll see you soon. And uh, appreciate it, everyone. We'll see you next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com.